Hello and welcome to episode number 27 of Earth Repair Radio. My father, my grandfather, what they used to do before was, you can't say it's Bama culture. Like they used to have uh, animals, they used to live in old houses built from mud and stones. They used to grow uh, vegetables in summer without irrigation. But Bama culture come as a new world and to gather everything together in one word, what's called Bema culture. So the, the town, if you look from above, it looks like, like a small jail. We have, we have two exits. Each entrance has a gate. If they close the gate, nobody can go out or get, or get in to, uh, from the, to the village. We need to live in peace and to live uh, as a humans like every, anyone else. Hello, I'm your host, Andrew Millison, and today's guest is Murad Al-Kufash. Murad is the founder of Marta Permaculture Farm, which is an internationally recognized NGO, a permaculture demonstration site, and his ancestral home, located in the Palestinian West Bank town of Marta. Murad is a permaculture teacher, has traveled internationally teaching, and has trained a cadre of permaculture practitioners within Palestine and beyond. Now, this is an especially personal interview for me because I grew up in a left-wing Zionist youth movement, and I spent over a year in Israel between the 1970s, 80s, and early 90s. I've heard from every perspective on the Israeli side, from the far left to the far right to ultra-Orthodox and everything in between. So I have a sense of the complicated politics and history of the Jewish and Palestinian peoples. Murad is my first Palestinian friend, and I feel really blessed to be able to share his perspective with you of what it's like to live a whole lifetime under the shadow of occupation. So please enjoy this interview with Murad al-Kufash. Good evening. <laughs> All right. Good evening, Murad. How, how are you doing there in Palestine? It's, it's my pleasure to meet with you and talk on Skype, man. It's, it's okay. Even uh, I'm tired and it's almost late. Yeah. But no, it's really my pleasure. It's nice weather these days. We're expecting maybe some rain. Hopefully we have some rain. At least uh, to wash the trees from dust. Because, you know, we, we just we come out from uh, summer was very hot season this year and you know it's climate change like people will start feeling the things like uh, we have heavy rain last year we have hot season summer this year it was very hot mm. so now it's autumn uh, in the night it's really chilly in the daytime sometimes it's hot now is the time of olive harvesting yeah so we, i just start two days ago and uh, i have about 70 or 85 trees, I mean, hmm. something like that. So I finish uh, 10 <laughs> till now. Yeah, okay. So a little ways to go, <laughs> right? So, yeah. yeah, so it's been really good. We've gotten a chance to talk at the different international permaculture conferences. Um, I think I saw you in Cuba. Were you there in Cuba? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then in, yeah. Uh, and then in the UK, and then India. You, That's true. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and I'm hoping to meet you again in Argentina. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, it's been really interesting for me to get to talk to you over these years and um, hear about your projects and you know this this somewhat unique perspective that you have um, because you're there in uh, the Palestinian West Bank. And um, so I wanted to talk a little bit to you today about about what life is like there and some of the 
the conditions that you face there with your permaculture project. And so let's start out by just telling us about your village, uh, what, what it's like there and, you know, what the size of it is and what people are doing there and agriculture, water, all these things. How would you describe your place? Yeah, my town is called Marda. Uh, and the town itself, it's an old town. It used to be very old. It used to be a city in the past. Uh, we have, we used to have seven mosques. When you say, when you talk about the town had seven mosques, that's mean you talk about city. And Nablus, old Nablus, it used to have seven mosques. Uh, but, uh, I think at the crusader times, uh, murder being damaged by the crusaders. Uh, as a revenge, and the people they left the town, many families. We have thousands of people there around West Bank. Many families still have carrying the name of their last name is like Mardans, Mardawi. Uh, we have many fields in the village now. It's no, it's known for the people in from uh, carrying the same name of the old owner from hundreds of years. And uh, the town size about, we, we used to be 9,000 dunums, uh, but the, the occupation took more than 50% of the land. Like the whole mountain being gone, they took it to, and to build one of the biggest settlements in West Bank. It's called Ariel Settlement. Yeah. Now, Established in nine, Yeah. I was going to say, how how big is a dunum? Most people listening aren't going to know that measurement. Yeah, dunum. When you talk, a dunum is one thousand square meter. thousand square meter. One thousand okay. square meter. A thousand square meter is, is one dunum. Okay. So, so yeah. So you so used to have about you said nine thousand dunums, and then Ariel. Nine thousand. Yeah, that's the size of the village, uh, with the land, but we lost more than fifty percent. And the town, town itself, it's surrounded with a fence. Like from north side, we have the main, the, the main street, what's called, uh, is, a, is a crossing the, the, the West Bank from east to west. It's a very famous street, uh, important street for the Israeli. So they put a fence next to that street. And from the, that's from north. And from south, we have the settlement. From uh, east, we have another settlement. Uh, from west is the same thing, the street is come to the west side too. So the, the town, if you look from above, it's look like in, being a, it's like in a small cave, like a small jail. Hmm. It's like a jail. We have, we have two exits or two entrance for the village. Each entrance has a gate. So if they shut down the gate, if they close the gate, nobody can go out or get, or get in into, uh, from the, to the village. Yeah. <clears throat> so, how much land is encompassed within that fence that now is is Marta Village? Do you know? Uh, uh, inside the fence, it's the bend. If you go east, it's more for, it's more open east. North, south, we have the settlements. I can show you the, the the lights. How close are there? Yeah. Can you see that? Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. That's like, yeah, that's like from, the, from the settlements. Like, uh, if they talk to each other, I can hear them from here. Okay. They're not far from. Yeah, yeah. I, I was looking, uh, I was doing a little research. I saw that Ariel is the uh, fourth largest settlement on the West Bank and has something like 
maybe the population's about 20,000, maybe? Does that sound about right? No, more. I think more. Okay. Maybe that I think it's more. Okay. Because the Ariel, they deal with it as a city. Okay. Not as a settlement. So they have industrial area on the west side of, the, of Ariel. They have a university. They have a police station. Yeah. And what is the population of Marta? Do you know? It's 2,600. What do most of the people in Marta do for a living? Uh, Palestinian people in general, most of them are farmers. Like in West Bank, we have only eight or nine cities. The rest of West Bank is countryside. So it'll be without farmers. But since the occupation and the occupation, when they opened their market for people to go to work, to build, unfortunately, I'm saying that again, unfortunately, they opened the market for us to go to work for them to build to build what's called Israel. Because Israel being built by laborers and laborers are most of them Palestinians or the settlements. So there they give uh, good cash, fast cash, easy work, than in compare with, with farming, if you like to farm, or like as let's say, as example, the olive harvest, the olives. You need to wait for the whole year, like 12 months for the, for the tree to produce olives, then you can get some cash. But if you when you when you have a chance to go to work in this this kind of settlement or inside 48 in construction, you can get uh, cash in a daily day like daily work. You get mm-hmm. more, you have more money, and people they get they feel the cash in their hands. Yeah. They don't need to wait for like uh, the whole sea or for like if they deal with uh, vegetables, they have to wait three or four months. Until the radishes or lettuce or cabbages or cauliflowers produce to sell and to get some cash, so that's make make it more difficult for us or for farmers in general. They ignore the land, they abandon their land, and they start work something new for them a construction, buildings or plumbers or whatever. And that was one of the excuses for the Israeli to get over the land because the land is empty. The Israeli, they use an old law since the Ottoman time. If that law was saying, if you if you have a land and you have not, if you did nothing in that land for three years, this land becomes state land, land state land. So they have the excuse to take it over and to control that land. And most of the areas where they built settlements, that's the way they took the land. Or the other excuse. They have a military camp. They surround the military camp with fence, and this fence become they increase and increase and increase and become settlement. Right. Yeah. So they have they have many ways to take the land. Yeah. How old are you, if you don't mind me? I'm asking. 49. You're 49. So you were born in 1970. 1970. Yeah. So it looks like um it looks like REL was established in 1978. So you have basically yeah. Eight, I was eight, I was eight years. Yeah, I was eight years, and I knew the mountain. I knew the whole mountain was empty. Uh, because in that age, I was uh, we used to have like uh, animals, like goats and sheep. So I used to go with my friends every day to the mountain for uh, to take the sheep and the goats there to eat. And we spent all the day in the mountain, and the sheep just go free everywhere they want. And in the afternoon... We just, somebody go and look for them and bring them back and we go back home. 
So I, I know that I knew the mountain from before they built one cement block. But now when I look at the, the mountain, how it looks like, especially if I use Google Earth to see how it looks like, it's, really, it's like I feel that I'm in Europe, but like in uh, the same place. Hmm. So yeah, it's very interesting that your your whole lifespan has been, you know, from pre-settlement to the situation now with you know Ariel, this large town. I, I, I'm yeah, really, I'm really, that, cu- that's- yeah, I'm really curious about the water. Like, I'm curious about where Marta gets its water and how that has changed so- and impacted over your lifetime. So Marda, as a geography area, it's based on the where the one of the biggest aquifer. What's called the West Aquifer. So we are on the top of a big lake of water. If you look and if you use Google Earth and you look at the geography of Marda, we are surrounded with mountains from all around the area. So underneath of us, we have lots of water. But and the village itself used to have three spring. The main spring is inside the village, in the central. And the second spring is next to my house here, in the west side of the village. And the third one, outside the village, and from the west side, too. So but the Israeli, when they came, they, they controlled the, the one outside the village. And they, start, they dig a well there, and they start pump water, and they give all around the country, the settlements, even to Jordan Valley. From from Marda water, and finally in in late 80s they give they agreed to give us water, so we have to buy our we have to pay money for to have our own water. Because you know uh, through the international law, Israel is supposed not to take anything from occupation area, but they those guys they not care they just take everything they have. And recently we heard that that uh, sister, that well, has gas. So that's a new thing now that we have gas in, in the area. You and mean like uh, natural gas? Yeah, natural gas, okay. yeah. So, oh, so suddenly maybe someone's going to want to drill and start to pump natural gas out of the ground as well. I mean... The Israeli will do that, yeah. not us. Not, yeah. We're not allowed. We're not allowed now. Right. And so, yeah. so, so, um, you have a spring by your house. Are you accessing that for water, or you need? Do you need to buy water from the Western Spring? For my house, for the house use, we, I use the tap water that I have. I buy water, but for the farm, I use the spring water. Because the spring, since uh, people they built houses around. The spring, and uh, we have no uh, what you call that, like a sewage system. Yeah. So people use septic tank, and so sometimes the spring is not clean to to drink, but you can use it for agriculture. A few years ago, I have some, I had some money, so I run a hose from the spring down to my farm. It's about 400 meter away. But my farm is lower than the spring. So I use the gravity to pull the water from the spring to my garden. And now I have the water 24-7 in my garden. I don't have a, I don't have a problem in my garden 
or my farm with water. Hmm. Yeah. Is that spring pretty plentiful then? Or is there a risk of, you know, are, are other farmers using that spring as well? Or does it seem like yeah. you... Yeah, I have uh, my neighbor, I give him water. I, I, he used my, the same hose. And uh, there's other farm, other neighbors, they use the spring to, they have chickens, like chicken farm to use. And another one, they have a greenhouse. Mm-hmm. They, use, they use the same hose. Yeah. So how has, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about the impacts because, you know, over your lifetime, you've really seen the impacts from having a village, Marta, that pretty much had the surrounding area for agriculture, grazing, had all the water rights, um, kind of looking for how life has changed, right? So you're buying water now um, from that yeah, western yeah, we, spring, the well. Yeah, I remember when we, we we used the water from the spring for the house. We we go we went there every day, maybe ten fifteen times, to carry water from spring up to up the hill to my house. Because my house where I grow up is uh, next to the mountain up the hill, so we had to go up. Sometimes we use donkey to carry the water on, or women they use the they carry like the twenty liter barrel and put it in their head. And they, they did this trip maybe 10, 15, 20 times a day. Because that water was to use, they used that water for washing, for uh, showers, for drinking, for everything. But now, since we have the tap water, we have to pay for water. It's expensive, by the way. It's very expensive. Like for one cubic, we pay uh, four and a half shekel. So it's $1.30. Something, something, similar, something like that. For how for much? One cubic. One cubic meter. For one, one, one cubic meter. Yeah. One cubic meter of water. Okay. And so people are using that that purchased water to water to, for agriculture as well, or is that just for domestic water supply? No, just for drinking because it's expensive for agriculture. Yeah. It's very expensive. Use it for agriculture to get like plants or vegetables. No, it's expensive. Yeah. But during the uh, through the farm project, I we run uh, ten uh, projects for houses to run to do a grey water system. So people here they they did this before and they do still doing it now, like they separate the water from the shower and the sink and the washing machine, uh, not to go to the septic tank or the toilet. So they move it to the garden to regate the trees if they have trees or if they have some vegetables. Yeah. The same thing I do in my house. Same thing for my house. I have this uh, sabret. So I have small. I have small orchard next to the house, uh, irrigated by the shower and the sink and the washing machine. Nice. Yeah. So how you know talk about a little bit how are you you're using permaculture there on your farm. So the permaculture, you know, I, I involved in permaculture since 1993. So uh, right after I back from America, I still had that dream to own my own, to have my own project. So I established this farm. Uh, the land was for my father. So I, I got the land and I start uh, do the design and fence for the garden. Uh, I had like uh, from empty land in 2006. Now in 2019, I have uh, almost an orchard. It's full with trees, uh, fruit trees, nuts, legume trees, olives, uh, figs, 
carrots, uh, I have chickens, I have pigeons, plus vegetables. I did design for like raised beds, most of it raised beds uh, against flooding because sometimes I have flood because my farm is almost in the middle of the valley. Hmm. So sometimes I got flood in the spring with the spring get flooding or from the Greeks around us. So I saved my garden by having raised beds. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, how how big is your, you said you have 85 olive trees. How big would you say your farm is? No, no, the 85 trees, that's not in the Bemaculture uh, the, the, the farm. It's outside the, uh, the farm. The farm itself, where I do Bemaculture, it's about uh, two dunums, like 2,000 square meters. Okay. Oh, and then you have olive trees up on the hills. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then you don't have to, you don't, you don't irrigate anything up on the hills, right? The olive trees are just there. No, no, no. Uh, they just, uh, they take water from only from winter. Yeah. Now are you most... It, it's, 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 good, it's good to water them, but I don't have the ability because I need, I, you need to get a tractor and a small tank to carry water to that field. Um, but I don't have um, that ability. It's expensive to do something like this. Yeah. So are you growing mostly for your own home consumption or are you uh, growing for the market as well? No. The, the idea, the farm is to work it's as a, a demonstration site. So I do models of gardening with in, through permaculture techniques like uh, combining plants, intensive gardening. So I cover my house, my family house, my mom's house. And uh, if I have something extra... The farmers from the village, they come and they pick and buy it. So I sell it in the village for farmers as organic food. But the price is still not like higher price like the other products, almost the same. And sometimes if I have more extra, I give it, just give it to the poor families. Okay. Where does most of the food in Marta come from? Is it mm, mostly From the market. There? Yeah. Yeah. In West Bank, we have like Jinin area. Is very productive area for vegetables, and you have Jordan Valley like Jericho. Um, but you know the Israeli always uh, cover the market with their products too. Okay. Now you talked about um, you talked about how Marta's mostly fenced in on several different sides to the you know south of course with Ariel and to the west, and then um, yeah. to the to the north. So. You know, yeah. are there are there times when, like, goods are just not moving around when things are kind of shut down, when transportation is not open? I mean, uh, this can happen any minute, because as I told you, we have two gates, uh, and sometimes those those gates was shut down and nobody can go out or get in. But recently, the situation is not really bad. Like, where there's no any activity. From the army or 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 something else, it's almost like in my town, it's almost okay. But the other towns, they still have problems. Yeah, like big problems. Like a, a town next to us called Borin, as example, they have the most crazy settlers and settlement next to them. Like two days ago, they just put one thousand olives full with olives. They put them in fire, and they just gone. Hmm. In a few. Minutes, we they lost one thousand three. Wow! So imagine that. Imagine that those farmers 
who own those trees, they wait for the whole year for this season to pick and harvest their olives and they just watch them get in fire. By, by who? By the, by the settlers. And those guys, they, can, they cannot do anything because those settlers is surrounded or protected by the army soldiers. Right. So what they can do. Yeah. And I know historically, <clears throat> I mean, I know that there's different times when, you know, there's been uh, the intifada has been happening and there's been like much more yeah. prob- probably everything. I mean, I know in your life you've seen times probably when all transportation was closed down for periods of time uh, yeah. and other times when yeah. things are relatively. So how do people how, how do people adapt to, you know, to that reality when there's such a uh, an insecurity with with whether people can get around or not, have access to markets. Like, what are people's adaptation strategies? Yeah, uh, like, like in east side, in the east side of us, there's the main checkpoint for West Bank. Because that checkpoint, if you go to Google Earth, east of Marda, you can see the roundabout, with, and you can see the checkpoint there. And that one, when they shut it down, they shut, they they cut West Bank north from south or east from west so they control the whole west bank it's almost in the middle the heart of west bank so when they shut down that area or uh, or nablus uh, entrance uh, people they go from like side streets like from the mountains from uh, from town to town through the mountains and they can reach maybe the city or reach other towns or through the fields they find their way through the fields or the groves between the groves and they find a way. And so when, it's, when it's really hard, just to stay home. <laughs> no right. need to go anywhere. We just stay home. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, so people... But, you know, but this now not happening like before. Now mm. it's less. Like mostly now, mostly now, uh, soldiers who are who are standing at the checkpoint, if they feel, if they, if they feel like uh, bothered, they just... Put something plastic, like uh, plastic things in the middle of the street. And in one minute, two minutes, you can see the line of the cars about a few kilometers. Just because he's not feeling well, that soldier. He just, he locked the street. And drivers have to wait for hours and hours. Like last week, I was coming back from Nablus. It took from us, from Nablus to Merda, 15 minutes. But that day, because that, the mood of the soldiers... It took from us two hours to come back home. For what? Nothing. Just, just nothing. There's nothing there. Just they're just standing, waiting, watching us. The cars, car by car, in one line, about a few kilometers long. Yeah. <clears throat> so you know, you teach permaculture to the people around you. You know, you're practicing there in your farm. Yeah. How have you? How do you feel like you use? You've used permaculture to really like respond to this situation? I mean, are there certain ways that you feel like your, your system and the way that you're doing things is really unique based on this, you know, conditions of occupation that you live under? You know, you know, as permaculture as a, as a word is a new word, but as a daily life things, it's uh, people used to do it before, like uh, my father, my grandfather, what they used to do before it was, you can't say it's permaculture. Like they used to have uh, animals, 
the animals live under under the ground, under the, uh, the first floor, and they live in the second floor. They used to live in old houses built from mud and stones. Uh, all the manure go to the farm, to the crops. They used to grow uh, vegetables in summer without irrigation, like uh, or in winter, winter crops. I mean, but permaculture come as a new word and to gather everything together in one word was called permaculture. So when I, I through this project I have the farm, when I run courses and or I I teach people, it's like I encourage them to come back and to start growing their own food. Even not no need to be in an open field. You can do it in your backyard, in your small garden next to the house, because each house has a garden. So you can we encourage them like okay, do irrigation, uh, uh, grey water system, uh, plant trees, fruit, uh, nuts, uh, almonds, olives, uh, vegetables. So these things you can get some benefit or some income from the that thing. But in in a big picture. Uh, if we have each one did these things, uh, I think that's some some kind of resistance, because I'm not gonna, I'm not going to depend on the Israeli market to get my own food. Like I have my garden now. If you look, if you look from up, you can look like an oasis, oasis, because mm-hmm. all everything around me is dry. Everything around my farm now is dry, except my garden is full green, full green with different trees. Productive trees now, almonds, figs, pomegranates, apricots, guava, uh, versamon, bananas, uh, what else? Olives. So all these I have them in 13, 12, 13 years now, and they are full productive. Hmm. So if everyone did the same thing I did, you can see the whole town come back green again. And this will affect the, the climate, because when you have like, it's, it's gonna be like a forest. Maybe maybe in the future we can have a, what's it called this, rainforest? Rainforest. Oh. Rainforest, yeah, I mean, yeah. Like, because when you have trees, Palestine used to be, Palestine in general, it used to be green, full with trees. But all these trees being cut down to build the train at the Ottoman time, hmm. or the British time. But, uh, you know, you need to encourage people to start planting trees because we don't have enough trees now. Yeah. What kind of influence do you feel like you have had on your neighbors, the other people in MARDA, other people that have taken your design courses? Have you have you really seen an impact? Yeah, with the, with the, the students who took the courses, yeah, we have many that start their own projects in Ramallah area in Jericho. Uh, they have many. We have many farms now run as environmental farming. Uh, uh, now it's more people. They are more. They have more uh, attention about permaculture or or about uh, organic food more than before. Mm-hmm. We did six courses in in twelve years. We six. We did six uh, design course, but in the unfortunately the last three years or four years we did not. We didn't do anything because of the lack of funding. We have no funding to cover the uh, the the cost of the course. Uh, but uh, our last three courses, most of the students was Palestinian students, mm-hmm. and most of them ag- agricultural engineers. So that that thing can get good uh, effect 
because those guys they're gonna be working the fields, and they will uh, they will deal with farmers. So when you teach them about permaculture, about not using chemicals or pesticides, then they will their advice for the farmers who they work with not to use chemicals. They can give them other options. Yeah, that's really great. But you know, this yeah. thing's going slowly. It's going slowly. It's not. It's not going fast. It's very slow. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, that's interesting. How <clears throat> I guess the uh, the people, the different types of people that come to your course can have a great impact themselves. So, if you have people that are training other farmers, then you're really spreading it like that way. What about your immediate community? Have have you do you feel like Marta itself has become um, more uh, resilient because of your work and and spreading to neighbors, or do you feel like you're sort of an island there in your community? You know what is here the the good challenge is the economy because if you're gonna do the economy, that's the most important thing for the or the the challenge that the farmers have because you cannot live from a small farm, you cannot make in good income from that. So farmers, what even if they like the idea, and they wish if they can do more, but at the end they face the the main problem is the money. Do they have money to build a farm like this, or to live from that farm? No, it's not easy. So they have to look for another place to do make money, to bring cash. Yeah. Uh, as an idea, they like it. They come to visit the farm all the time, especially in the summer. They, every day they come to visit the farm and see what I'm doing there. You know, the, the economy is important because, you know, it's uh, to build a farm like this or to live from a farm, you need money because it's, it's, the farm cannot give you money right away. You need to wait years until your farm become a full productive farm and give you enough money to live from. And this will take, you know, as I told you, it will take years and years to do it. Yeah. So you mentioned stuff like um, teaching people about gray water to uh, use their, um, you know, mildly dirty wash water and such to grow trees in their yards. Are there other smaller, um, smaller different techniques that you've been able to share with people that, you know, as opposed to creating a full blown permaculture farm and all the economic investment, are there other smaller things you've been able to share with people that they have taken up just because of the the ease and the fact that it is achievable and, and makes a lot of sense to them? Yeah, like uh, the model we built in Jericho for the YMCA, we have two projects for them. One of them is was raised beds and aquaponics. And the other, second project, they, they, we have hydroponics and wicking beds and vertical gardening. So uh, all these models, it's uh, to show them that you can still do something. If you don't have a land, you still can use the rooftop by having wicking beds or vertical gardening. No need to have soil or a garden to do a garden. So all these techniques or models is example to show people that they can they can do something. Yeah, so some of your your more like urban based strategies seem like they're uh, people find those pretty effective. Uh, you know, like you mm-hmm. said, the rooftops and stuff. the project we have in, the project we have in Jericho. It's really important projects. We have it since three years now. We we run a workshop for students twice a year. 
and until now we did four workshops for uh, uh, housewives and for anyone interested, but mostly housewives. And those women, they are really very productive now. They have their own projects in their in their gardens or in their rooftop. So it's really uh, what we're doing in Jericho now is very important. And who's running the, the one who's running the project? She's one of my students. She took a design course. After that, she still she started doing this project in Jericho as a coordinator. Nice. And she's a teacher. She's teaching permaculture now. Great. So now you have you have a you have sort of a legacy now. You have students of yours that have now become teachers and spreading. Exactly. exactly. That's great. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. What what sort of plans do you have now? I mean, one of the reasons why we got in touch is you were you were um, raising money to uh, get a chipper in order to for doing composting for exactly. olive prunings. Yeah, like what are, what are your plans now? What do you what are you working to develop? Yeah, you know uh, the farm now. As uh, if you look at the pictures, uh, it's full with trees. And when I prune the trees, I get a lot of branches, lots. Now I have a corner. It's full. It's a big pile of branches, and to do compost with those is hard. So I was I was uh, willing to have this chipper machine that I can chop them and do like do, to make them like a wood chips and to make compost. It's easier for me to make compost because I have a lot of uh, from the vegetables. When I have the the season finish and I harvest all this leftover, plus the branches from the trees I prune and my neighbors when they prune their olives, they stop they burning those branches or they just leave it there. So why not to use all these things, collect them, and we can chop them, and we start making compost as a fertilizer for the farm or for the neighbor themselves to fertilize their olives. So I was thinking to have this machine, but unfortunately it's expensive. I cannot have I cannot manage it. They We have homemade from Janine. There's a, some people in Janine, they, they, they make it, they make them, and uh, we can buy it from there, but it's still expensive. So I had this idea to have this fundraising, to buy the to buy the machine. Then I start doing these things in my garden or my neighbors. Yeah. Now, are there things that you've thought of, like that could actually help you to generate money? For example, if you were making compost and then selling them, like, are there kind of aside from growing crops and selling to your neighbors, do you feel like there are different services? that could be offered and you know and again we say we say taking on you know doing permaculture but what you're saying is it sounds like it's really easy for you to just sell this to people as this is how our fathers and grandfathers and grandmothers lived here uh-huh. you probably don't even need really need to use the word permaculture you can probably just talk about traditional agriculture but it sounds like yeah you can, you can. that's that's true that, so one of the the, the the arguing here about the, the name why to use permaculture? But but the, the word as 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 a word for permaculture is no translation, perfect translation into Arabic. So I use permaculture. I like the word and permaculture for me is like everything. So uh, but here are some people that use sustainable agriculture. But if you say if you use sustainable agriculture, you you keep the thing only in agriculture. Nothing else. But permaculture is everything: natural buildings, animals, humans, air, sun, uh, earth, everything. So I, I like to use permaculture. 
Do you sometimes not use the word just because you feel like it would be confusing and, and it's easier to just talk about traditional it's systems? Yeah, it's, it's confusing somehow, but uh, I explain it. Okay. So when people ask what's, what's the difference, I explain to them what's the difference. But there's no translation in Arabic for the word. Right. Interesting. So I guess what I was getting at was um, with my earlier question is, are there different types of cottage industry that could help people earn other farm-based income aside from just from the sort of long term, the long wait of, you know, having, you know, needing to wait for the olives to ripen or needing to wait for the vegetables to be ready. I'm thinking like, like, are there other instances where if you had a chipper, for example, could that enable you or someone else in your community to generate other farm-based income? Um, You know, are there other investments that could be made that could help people to generate income other than just the growing of of fruits and vegetables. Yeah, I don't get the right, the question exactly what you mean, but uh, what income can be like faster than? Uh, I mean, there's nothing fast. Everything have to take a time. Yeah. No, I'm thinking like if you had a chipper, suddenly could you offer a, yeah. a service that would you know make some extra money? I can make, I can make good compost. And uh, maybe I can sell the compost if from the farm itself. I can sell the compost because I can produce compost in 18 days. Like the 18 days compost, like as Jeff Lotton doing. So it's gonna be faster and easier for me to, to build to make compost. And I can offer the service for the, the farmers who prune their trees, like especially the olives. Like my Selfit, I, I, I live in Selfit district. So Selfit district is called the olive tree uh, governate. So we have all the mountains, all the fields full with olives. So now after the olive harvest, people start pruning. So if you look at the ground, on the, you see it's full with branches. So we can offer to collect all these branches and put them in the machine and have small wood chips and to make compost. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's one machine. We can do like many things in this, in this machine, yeah. at, least for, for the, at least for the neighbors. If, yeah. if not going to cover the whole town, maybe it's, maybe it's too much to say the whole town from one machine, but at least you can cover many farmers. Yeah, because I was just thinking of another guy that I interviewed, um, Paul Yaboa. He's in Ghana, and he got a big grant from Lush Cosmetics uh, to mm-hmm. help him establish a site, and he created a Moringa processing facility, right? So, uh-huh. so suddenly... All these farmers can grow moringa, which is a you know a perennial nitrogen fixing kind of superfood crop, and then they bring it to his processing facility, and he turns it into powder or whatever the the product is, and then he has access to international markets. So because he had this investment to create a moringa processing facility, he was able to turn a whole region full of farmers onto growing moringa instead of other more uh, land-degrading crops, you know? So I was just curious about if there's sort of like leverage points for, you know, some sort of piece of equipment or something like that. I understand what you mean, but maybe maybe that area has more lands. But in Palestine, I tried this with Lush to uh, encourage them to do some... uh, uh, herbs here to produce uh, 
oil, but they refuse because of the reason you mentioned now. Why to why not to grow vegetables instead of one plant? Because our land is limited, but maybe in that area for this guy, they have more land. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. for us, we I, I I supply lush with olive oil. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it would just be interesting, like if there was people listening that wanted to make some sort of contribution to something that was going to really help to kind of turn the tides for you, their community, you know, like like you mentioned the chipper, that was one thing that could really, you know, make that change. Yeah, uh, West Bank, it's not a huge land. It's a small land uh, and mostly mountains. So to produce something like this, like uh, let's say Moringa, you need a big space, and we don't have that thing. I don't think we have it here. It's hard to do something like that, as example, I mean. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, what else What else do you want to share about about what's happening there and, and what you're doing? What I like to share, it's I like to invite people to come to visit Palestine. Because whatever I say, Whatever I describe, the incubation and the problem we have or we're facing from incubation is not enough in compare if people just come by themselves and they, and they watch and they, sh- they live the situation. I mean, that's, in my opinion, those guys, they can work as ambassadors because let's say if you come to visit and you see everything and you go back, you can make maybe... Uh, you can do maybe a lecture with different students in front of you and you explain to them and you what exact you live, not what you hear. So that can give a good picture about what's happening in Palestine. So I invite people to come to visit us and see how we live under incubation, especially people in America, because Israel have the big support from America to against Palestinian people. So why? The question is why? Why America it support Israel against the Palestinian people and we never hurt America with anything. We're still humans. We are about 13 millions in general. We have 9 millions, I think, they live as a refugee outside the country. So the question is why they live as a refugee and they have their own houses, their own land, they can live and do the, make their, ha- their lands full productive than live in a tent in Lebanon or in Syria or in uh, Jordan or in Europe go to ask for asylum or in America or Canada. We're still human. We need to live in peace and to live uh, as a humans like every, anyone else. Yeah. Do you have partners within Israel or support within Israel from any different organizations or, or people that are working with you? Not really. I have a guy, he's, he's my friend, he, he's an American guy anyway, he lived very down south in uh, next in, in Negev, uh, in a kibbutz. So I met him once in 2008, but I'm still in touch with him, sometimes on the phone. When we have a holiday, he sent me a good wishes. When he have a holiday, I send him good wishes, that's it. Because I cannot go to visit him, uh, because I'm in, I'm in the blacklist, I cannot have a permit. Because if I need to go there, I have to have a permit from the Israeli side. 
and they put me in the blacklist. Why? I have no idea. Hmm. Uh, so I, I cannot go there. I cannot enter. Like, you know, this settlement next to me, I cannot enter it. It's not allowed to me to enter there. But you are allowed to. I keep meeting you in other places around the world, so you are allowed to travel internationally. Lucky until now that I can't travel outside. I can't cross to Jordan. I'm lucky. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but I can't go to Australia, but I cannot go to this settlement. About uh, Look how, how far Australia is and how far this settlement. So I cannot go to this settlement. Uh, this mountain where we, where we have about 40 dunums there is taken by the settlers. I cannot go to my land there, but I can't go to Australia. <laughs> right. You can't walk up the hill, but you can get an airplane and go to Australia. That's interesting. What other what other organizations have supported you over, over the time? I'm curious. I mean, outside, you mean? Yeah. International. Yeah. Inter- yeah, we have support from uh, America, uh, an NGO called uh, Firedoll. Called what? They support F- Firedoll. Firedoll. Firedoll, D-O-L, okay. Firedoll, and we got support from Lush, we got support from Australia, and that's it. But now I have no support from anyone. <laughs> mm, so you're just you're just uh, making it on your own there, and you are you're are you making all your income from your farm at this point? No, most of my income from uh, selling oil to Lush. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, selling a product from, is it just oil from your farm or you're you're taking oil from? No, no I, buy, I, buy, I buy the oil from the farmers in, in Merda. Oh, okay. Okay, good. Yeah. So you're sort of like a oil distributor. Exactly, yes. I, I'm, I do some living from that. I'm okay. You could say I'm okay now, but yeah. uh, you never know what will happen in the future. Right, right. And and how do you feel about the future? I mean, are you optimistic about the future at this point, or you know how how does how does this situation weigh on you? Like we started talking about how you've seen this whole change over your entire lifetime. You know, born in nineteen seventy. Um, what yeah. are your feelings about the future at this point? I'm really scared from future. I'm not like uh, hoping for good because situation is getting worse and worse. Uh, every day we lose more land. Every day we have a new Things come out from the occupation. The country around us is really full damage. Uh, sometimes, like my wife say, said, okay, let's let's leave this country and go somewhere like to Europe or to whatever, or or at least go to Chile because you know I have a, a Chilean passport, hmm. so I can go to Chile easy. But I mean, uh, I'm not young now to travel and to take my kids. I have six kids. Hmm. The oldest, she's eleven. The youngest, uh, less than two years now. It's hard and it's very expensive to travel with those and to start from zero in those country. No, I think I prefer to stay in my house, my land, whatever the situation will be. But at least I'm in, la- I'm, I'm in my house. I'm not in, well, in my land, not in somebody else's land. Yeah. 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 All right. So how can people get in touch with you or how can people uh, help to, you know, contribute uh, and support what you're doing there? I mean, they, anyone can Google my name. If somebody Google my name, uh, they can find everything about me. Uh, Facebook, 
Skype or uh, our the website is is old but still running. Uh, we uh, we have uh, the Global Vision Institute in uh, in America, the farm where where Albert Bates is. Uh, we have an account there. Uh, we have an account for uh, if someone would like to do some funding to, to uh, at the Bamakachi Association in London. Uh, yeah, Facebook mostly. Yeah. Okay. Um, is there anything else you want to add before we? Before we conclude, no, I just like to thank you, and uh, I really appreciate that you give me your time, and you give me this chance or this opportunity to talk with you, and maybe some and the people will they will hear my voice in America, and I wish if I go back to America again, I I, I lived five years in Chicago, so my dream, one of my dreams is to go back to visit at least not to stay but to to visit America again. And to make a small tour, like to talk about Palestine, about my, my, and to talk about the permaculture in Palestine, uh, in different places in America. Maybe one day I will do it. I don't know. Yeah. All right. Well, you'll be welcome to come visit me here in Oregon or, or wherever I am at that time. So. Thank you. I appreciate. It. Thank you. And you are welcome to come to visit us, to visit me here too. Thank you. All right. Well, um, hey, I look forward to seeing you again, Murad. And thank you so much for your time. I know it's late there and you've been harvesting olives all day and you got six kids and all this stuff going on. So thanks for taking the time. I really, really appreciate it. And it's been really interesting for me. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, have a good night. Thank you, man. Okay. Have a good night. Thank you so much for tuning in to Earth Repair Radio. I'm Andrew Millison, and you can find more episodes on earthrepairradio.com.